There are, there are many seminaries that do not any longer require Greek and Hebrew as part of their programs. And sometimes I think people looking at Westminster say, oh boy, that's a definite deterrent. I really don't want to do Greek and Hebrew. I think I'll go somewhere else where I don't have to learn those things. Um, and you know, that's perfectly valid. But I think it's really important to study the Greek and Hebrew. Um, it's part, it was part of the founding documents of Westminster that that would be part of the program. Um, and it has remained so to this day. Um, but why? Okay, we have English and other translations, whatever your native language is. Hopefully there is a translation of the Bible in it. Um, if not, and you come from somewhere in the world where you don't have a Bible in your language and you're here, I'm really impressed and I would love to talk to you. But probably wherever you came from, there's a Bible in your language. And the translations are trustworthy. You know, we can trust our English Bibles, Spanish Bibles, Russian Bibles, whatever they are. Um, so you, that, that is important, I think, to know and to assure people, Christians everywhere, you can trust your Bible that's in your translation in your language. Um, <clears throat> but translation is definitely not an exact science, you know, like chemistry or calculus or all those things that I stay away from. Um, you know, it's not like you put, a, you put in a word in this language and you press this little formula button and out comes the right word in the target language. It requires decisions and judgment calls often. Now, sometimes you'll have a, a, a clause, phrase, verse that's completely straightforward. And anybody coming to the text would say, that's really clear. This means this. Okay? And that's great. And there are lots of those. Okay? But there are also lots that are not quite that clear. And there may be you know, two ways that you can take a certain word or a certain turn of phrase. Or there might be a play on words. Okay, John is famous for that. So when he says, you know, you must be born anothen, anothen can mean again, it can mean from above. So which one did he mean there? Well, maybe he meant both. Okay, maybe he intended to use that word that means both of those things. But if you're translating the Bible, you have to pick one or the other. Now sometimes, some translations, like the ESV is good about putting one in the text and then putting the other in the footnote, which is great because then the reader in the target language can say, oh, isn't that cool? It sort of means both of those things. Okay, so that's neat. But you don't always have the option of using lots of footnotes to explain every choice that you made and what the other possible choices were that you couldn't put in the text. Um, sometimes you'll have a term in the original language that is just tremendously rich. So for instance, um, in Dutch, there's this term, gezellig. And it, there's so much that goes into that word. It's, it, if you have friends over, okay, you have you know, half a dozen friends over, and you have this great evening, and you have good food, and you listen to great music, and great conversation, and it's just fun, and you feel bonded together, and you just feel like, oh, this was great. I'm so glad we did this. I feel closer to all these people at the end of the evening. That was a gezellig evening. So what word are you going to use to translate that? Well, cozy does part of it. Intimate, warm, fun, full of life, bonding. You know, it's all those things go into the term gezellig. But if you're just making a translation and you have to pick one of those words, you do the best you can, but you're missing so much. And whereas if you live in the Netherlands and you, you know, hang out with a bunch of Dutch people and you learn to speak Dutch and somebody says, oh, that was gezellig. You know what they mean and it's all, it's the whole picture, it's all the baggage. 
just in that term. Um, and there are terms like that in many languages. There are some in Hebrew. I would say chesed is one of those. You know, it means covenant faithfulness, and it means steadfast love, and it means trustworthiness, and it means loyalty, and it means all those things. But you just got to pick one of them. In any given text that you're translating, you have to say, well, I mean, it means all those things, but I, I'm going to pick this as the most prominent of them for this passage. And then you're translating on you know, somewhere else, and you say, oh, here's chesed again. Well, I think that sort of the nuance that rises to the surface as the most important here is this one, so I'm going to go with that word. But the whole package is there in the Hebrew. When you see chesed, it means all those things wrapped up into one big bundle. So your English translation is fine, whichever, you know, it may, you know, your loving kindness endures forever, your steadfast love, whatever, that's absolutely fine, it's completely trustworthy. But it's also missing something. You know, it's missing some of that richness. And if you're reading the Bible in English or whatever language, and here you see steadfast love, and here you see covenant faithfulness or something like that, it doesn't immediately occur to you that it's the same Hebrew word behind those things. And so you don't always make the same kind of connections just reading the English that you would if you were reading the Hebrew and you say, wow, it's the same word here and here. Okay, so translations are absolutely trustworthy. They are fine. They are sufficient. But often there's so much more there that you can pick up on if you can read it in that original language. And so I would say not every Christian needs to read Hebrew, but some Christians need to read Hebrew and Greek so that they can bring that richness to the church. And it seems to me that church leaders of all kinds, pastors, counselors, whoever, if you can go to the Hebrew and the Greek original and, and draw out that richness to feed to people, that's really important. And I think that's part of why Westminster has continued to say, no, this is important for church leaders to know how to do this. So um, that's, and let me back up. I wrote myself a few notes this morning. Um, sometimes there are things that you simply cannot bring across in a translation. It just doesn't work. For instance, in the second semester of Hebrew this summer, we're reading through the first three chapters of Judges. And there's some things going on there where the author used the actual structure of the grammar to make some points. Okay, so there's, you know, in this particular sentence, blah, 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 and the subject of the sentence is all the way at the very end. And that's significant. He's actually making a very subtle comment on that, actually, it's actually a whole tribe, by the fact that he's mixed up the expected grammar. It's not your usual way to construct a sentence, and he's put them all the way at the end, and that's, it's making a little kind of a tongue-in-cheek judgment about the person whose name shows up at the end of the sentence. You can't bring that into English. You could do it in Greek or Latin, I think, probably in German, languages where you can you know, put a, a case ending on a word, and then wherever it shows up in the sentence, it's clear this is the subject. But you actually can't do it. We tried. Like we tried and tried, and you just cannot do that in English. You, in that particular sentence, the only way to communicate it is you have to have the subject at or near the beginning. And so the sentence of the sentence, sense of the sentence comes across just fine, but you don't get the little subtle thing the author was doing with the text by putting the subject at the end. So there are things that you miss. And in poetry, oh my goodness, I mean, you know, translating poetry from any language to any language is tough because of just the nature of poetry. You know, there's so much packed into words 
and connections and references to other things. And that is really tough to bring across to another language. And I'm not talking about just let's make it rhyme. Okay, but just capturing the, the full richness of the sense is so tough. So if you have, you know, I have a little short poem and I'm going to teach you about it, or you have you know, a pastor up in the pulpit and he's going to preach on this, he can unpack all that stuff. And he can say, okay, look at this connection to this and look at whatever. And he's got half an hour or whatever his church gives him okay, to talk about what's in this text. But you can, if you're translating, you've got this much space on a page and you've got to bring, you've got to make choices of words that do the best you can, but you just can't do it all. So I think for that reason, the church needs to have leaders that can work with the original languages and bring all that out to feed the flock. That's first reason. <clears throat> also, um, you can't, somebody can know just enough Greek and Hebrew to kind of be dangerous. Okay, that is true of many things. You can know just enough of whatever to be dangerous. You know, chemistry, if it comes to mind. Um, <coughs> um, or cooking. Um, but anyway, so, you know, sometimes you will hear a TV preacher or somebody or other, somebody in the pulpit of a church you're visiting or whatever, who will, you know, say, well, now the Hebrew says, and then off they go. And sometimes where they go off to is actually unsound. And if I'm sitting in the pew and I'm listening to somebody teach on, you know, whatever the point is, I, I can listen and I can say, boy, that, that doesn't sound quite right to me. Okay, and I can go and I can check, check other scriptures and say, that doesn't seem to me to line up with this other thing over here. You know, and the Bereans were commended for checking out what Paul said, going back to the scriptures and saying, okay, does this line up? And, and Paul said, that is a worthy thing that they were doing, and that's what people in the view ought to be doing. We should listen with ears that, that test things for, is this, is this sound or not? But if somebody is saying, well, the Hebrew says, whatever, I have no tools to fight that with. I, I can't critique, maybe the Hebrew says that, maybe the Hebrew doesn't, okay? But if I don't know Hebrew, I, just, I, I have nothing, no way to evaluate what's being said. So again, not every Christian sitting in the pew needs to know Hebrew, but somebody needs to know Hebrew. And it seems to me the church leaders need to know Hebrew so that they can go back and say, well, I can sort of see where they're getting that, but actually that's not sound, you know, and, and they can explain it to the people sitting in the pews. So I think it's part of a protection for the flock too, actually, for the leaders to, to be familiar with the Hebrew and the Greek and be able to evaluate things that people in the pew are hearing. Maybe somebody will say, you know, I watched this show last night and here's what they said. Okay, and the pastor can sit down and say, well, here's why they're saying such and such. They're going from this to this and this, but actually this step in the middle is, is faulty, okay? And don't worry about that. It's okay. Here's where they're coming from, but here's a better way to think about that. So, so really, I think it's part of an oversight of the flock. To, it, it's a protective measure for people in leadership to be able to work with the Greek and Hebrew and say, okay, l let me help you think about this. So that's the second reason. Okay, third reason. Um, this is, you know, this is sort of fantasy a little bit. Pretend you come to seminary, okay, and you are trying to, you know, pay the bills and you pay the tuition and you, you know, medical insurance and all that sort of stuff. And you get this letter, okay, from somebody somewhere in the world, some little country, someplace, little rich country, someplace, okay. And the ruler of that country says, "Dear so and so, I have selected you, and I want to sponsor you. So don't worry about your bills." I'm going to pay your tuition, I'm going to pay your rent and your utilities, 
and your grocery bill, and I will provide medical insurance, and just don't worry about it. I'm like, wow, that's pretty nice. That's great. Okay, and then you say, I accept. Thank you very much. Sign the dotted line. Okay, and then every week you get a letter from this ruler, whoever he is, okay, just telling you a little bit more about himself, about his country, about what's on his heart. And the more you read these things, you think, oh my word, this person is incredible. Now, the part I left out of the story is that he is writing you in some obscure language that you can't read. Okay, and you're like, I gotta find out what this is about. This guy's paying all my bills. I'm gonna check this out. So you hunt around and you finally discover somebody who's from that country and speaks that language. And every week when you get your letter, you take the letter to whoever this is, you know, and they say, oh yes, I will read this to you. And so they read you the letter, you know, and they, you can get the gist of what the ruler is communicating to you, okay? But you can tell from the way this person is reading and translating that there's more there. Not that he's trying to hide something, but just that, you know, it's like, oh, you, you don't understand what this means, you know, in my country. Whatever, you know, when a person says this, this is what it means. Okay, okay, or just, you know, you can, you know, oh, this is so beautifully written, you know, whatever. Okay, and, and the more you find out about this person sponsoring you, you're like, oh my goodness, you know, do you know in his country there is no poverty? None, nothing, everybody shares, it's just, it's amazing. And you ought to hear this, what this ruler says about, he is so concerned for the people in his society that are hurting or that are sick or children that are orphans or whatever, and listen, listen to what he did for them, okay? And you get to know more and more about this person, and you're just blown away by who this person is. And every week you take your letters to the, you know, the person from wherever it is, and they translate for you. But it seems to me, if I were in that situation, sooner or later, I would want to say, forget this. Teach me how to read this stuff, okay? I want to read these letters. I want to get all the connotations and the richness and everything else. So that, that's, you know, maybe that's a less concrete reason to learn Hebrew, but you know, the Lord has given us a great big wonderful letter, four-fifths of which is in Hebrew, and the other fifth of which is in Greek, not in English, any of it. So I think that's an, just an additional reason, it's something I love about the, reading the Hebrew, is to just say, you know, at the beginning of class we sing usually the first verse or two of Psalm 121, you know, I lift up my eyes to the hills, and it's just so neat to me to sing with the class and you know to say my help is from the Lord who made heaven and earth and I'm saying that in the words that somebody wrote you know thousands of years ago who also knew the maker of heaven and earth and it's just I don't know that may not turn you on okay if you like chemistry and calculus and all that sort of stuff that may not push your buttons at all but for me that is really exciting to think that I can get in there and explore the riches and the depths of these letters that the Lord has sent us. So we'll get to know him better. So um, at, over the years, over the 80 years of Westminster, every now and then the question has come up, should we forget the language requirements? And you know, there will be mounting pressure. Say, you know, students are saying, oh boy, I, I'm just, I can't think about Greek and Hebrew, I think I'll go somewhere else or whatever, and saying, should we, should we drop this? And so the faculty gets together and they bat the idea around and I don't know how many times this has happened, maybe it's only been once or twice, maybe it's been more than that, but every time they have come down and said, no, it's really important. Church leaders need to be able to read the Bible in Greek and Hebrew. So we're gonna keep the requirement. Now in the MA program, you don't have to learn Greek and Hebrew, but in the MAR and the MDiv, you do. 
And, you know, of course, I'm completely biased, but I think it's a good decision. So um, anyway, that's, that's my answer to why learn Greek and Hebrew. Why is it important?